I've been thinking a lot lately about the word and the idea behind the word of connection, right? The connection of people, my connection to others, the connection of history to present day, the connection of all people throughout all times on a variety of these kind of sub-continuums of this greater timeline of humanity. That's sort of how I'm envisioning it. Timelines and continuums are a helpful visual aid. Wait, let me stop here. If you have a child that is four years or younger who maybe is starting to have a rough time hanging out in here, I have some volunteers outside. If they need to step out and maybe go play and hang out out there, we've got that available, just FYI. Also, feel free to get up and move around during the service. If you've got kids who need to like move, that's okay. Get up and move. That's fine. It's part of the whole deal today. So this idea of connection and this idea of continuums, we have to submit and understand that we exist on a continuum, a continuum that connects all of us in all times and in all places. And on this timeline, we are preceded by brilliance, light bulbs, record-breaking running times, brilliant uh, theological and philosophical thought, right? We are preceded by brilliance. We are also preceded by great tragedy. We know that to be true. And what we also know about continuums, as is implied by the name continuum, they continue, Right, we know that beyond us, there will be more brilliance than we can possibly imagine. And we hope less tragedy as we grow into and live out of our belovedness. But I think the beyondness of the continuum is sort of a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. Because I think every generation seems to assume that on some level, they have arrived. Right, we have, we have found some great truth arrived at some ultimate thought and it can't possibly get any better than it is right here, right now. But we know that's not true, right? We know we exist on this timeline and on this timeline, all before us and even now as we sit in this space, we've been asking some of the same questions. And one of the questions that we've been asking ourselves is where is God? Like the people in our story, right? And the question is never actually, is there a God? Because sociology and history teach us that we as a species are actually predisposed to assume or believe that there is something greater, right? We, we sense innately, inherently that there is something. So the question is never, is there a God? It's where is God? And then the question that follows directly behind that is then what is our relationship to that God? Because see, what you believe about God's proximity or God's geographical or cosmic location greatly determines what your relationship to that God is, right? And because we have story upon story upon story of people experiencing God from outside in some of the most extreme or miraculous sort of ways, it's been our tendency then to assume that, well, obviously that's how you find God, Right? By looking outside of oneself, always being on the lookout or hopeful for some mind-blowing way that God can sort of like happen to you. Right? And often these stories take place in the farthest reaches of creation, these fierce landscapes like we saw in our story. And we've done it all. We've looked for God in the waves. We've looked for God in the caves. We've looked for God on the mountaintops. And we've looked for God in the deserts. And what's beautiful is we found God. 
We found God out there. But what we have failed to realize and perhaps what we're just beginning to see is that we never had to leave to find her. Right? We never had to leave to find God. And if we're being completely honest and we take a step back and look at the continuum, we can assume that at best we are just beginning to sort of metaphorically build these roads and form these windows to answer these questions in new and different ways. Perhaps we may even just be beginning to like gather the materials to even start the building. Right? But either way, we know because the continuum continues that we have a long way to go. If we examine, if we step out of the human continuum, the greater human continuum, and look at a Christian continuum, just of the Christian tradition, we find those at the very beginning of that timeline that we call the disciples, the earliest followers of Jesus, often finding themselves in a fierce landscape, right, in a boat, on troubled and tumbling waters, right? Once, we see this story played out a lot. They're terrified that something's going to happen to them as this boat is being threatened by the winds and the waves. Once, as Jesus sleeps on the other side of the boat, and they cry out, Jesus, why aren't you doing something? See? Looking for God to intervene from elsewhere to come in and fix the problem. And did God intervene? Yeah. Yeah, our story tells us that God did intervene. As Jesus stood, told the waves to calm, surely the disciples, no doubt, felt an intimate connection, not only to that fierce landscape, but to the God that they saw in that experience. They sensed a connection with the ground of all being as their breath slowed and the waters below them settled. Yes, they experienced God there in a fierce landscape by way of Jesus, an external source in an external space. And look, I get it. This is not a crazy idea. We've been experiencing God like that for our whole history, right? We can look at the continuum and see that. And I personally know what it means to feel a deep sense of connection with a particular landscape and thus the God that I experience in that landscape, right? One of my favorite things to do, if you know me well, is to watch documentaries about the ocean. (laughs) It's one of my favorite things. And I think I can say that I've watched just about every one of them that I can possibly get my hands on. And what I love about watching these documentaries is that every new documentary I watch, there's something new. It's a new fish or some other new creature or some new depth that before that moment had never been seen. And I get to watch it unfold. It's incredible to me, and there's something about that specific environment that sends chills throughout my body, and I get this great sense of the bigness and beauty of life itself. It's not crazy. In fact, what may be crazy is I'm taking, I'm currently taking an online shark biology course. Real life, people. That is happening currently. It was free. It was offered through the University of Queensland. I was really excited about it. Anyway, but what I love, that's a particular creature that I'm really drawn to for some strange reason. But what I love is that as I keep digging deeper into this landscape, into the things of that landscape, I discover these new facets of this beauty of life. It's wonderful. It's why half my arm is covered in waves and fishes and underneath it reads, he that will learn to pray, let him go to sea right? I get it. If you want to find God, see God, know God, hear God, go away, go out there onto the water. I get it. I totally resonate with our historical notion of how and where to find God. 
But see, I have to simultaneously be aware that if I were to ask someone who'd experienced the devastation of a tsunami, if they saw God's face on the waters, they're going to be really hard-pressed to say yes, right? Or maybe they only know God by way of a tsunami, right? Maybe they only know a God who is terrible, who takes everything that matters to them, a God that does what God wants, when God wants, no matter the consequences, Right? How am I supposed to tell someone like that, oh, you find God out there on the water, a loving, beautiful God? How am I supposed to reconcile that with them? We've tried our whole history. We've been trying to reconcile this idea that God is out there by saying things like, oh, the destruction that comes from the waters, right? The floodwaters. We've been doing this since the beginning. That destruction is representative of God's wrath or God's power. It is a result of those things. That's how we reconciled it. And that makes sense. That's a great reconciliation for a belief structure that tells you that God can only be found or experienced elsewhere. But you see, it doesn't add up, right? It's not a complete picture. It's not bad or wrong. It's just incomplete. We can't only know God in these fierce landscapes out there externalized from ourselves. Fast forward on our Christian continuum and we have this whole movement of monastics and mystics called desert fathers and mothers, which is exactly what it sounds like. These are people who sought God out in the desert. Their practice was a way to disengage from the world and to shut out the voices of the many in order to find the voice of the one, as I point upward as if that's where God is. (laughs) Right? And that's not a ridiculous notion. In fact, it's beautiful. It's really helpful. It's okay. It's fine. It's really helpful. Hi. Hi. You guys want to sit on the carpet? You guys want to sit? Great. Yeah. So looking for God in the desert, looking for God on the waves, it's helpful. It's good. It's beautiful. And what's incredible is that we found God there. Right? We have found God there. And those desert fathers and mothers had a sense of succeeding in that. But it's when we begin to understand that we are the conduits for the action of God in the world, that all of that feels a little bit incomplete. It all feels incomplete because what I believe we're beginning to understand is that when we disconnect ourselves from humanity, we disconnect ourselves from a robust image of God. When I disconnect myself from them, I disconnect myself from a robust image of God. (laughs) They're clapping for you, girl. (laughs) Because what we've seen, what we've seen is that all we come back with from years of dry desert heat can only still ever be such a small portion of God. All along this continuum, from the disciples to the desert fathers and mothers, we've been searching high and low for God out there. And we've learned a lot from those experiences, right? We've learned that certainly nature bears the image of God, right? We have volumes on volumes on volumes of poetry. We have record on record on record of songs that speak to that idea. We've learned that really well. We've learned the great capacity of the human body to withstand really intense circumstances. We've learned that we belong to the earth and the earth to us, and we are responsible for it. We have a great responsibility. What we seem to just be discovering, however, is God here, God here, 
God here. Right? In the in-between, the peace of God in me, fusing with the pieces of God that are in them, resulting in a more complete and robust image of God than could ever be found out there in solitude. Right? A divine presence that's certainly born out of our search for God elsewhere, but is best understood perhaps here among us. We needed the deserts and the oceans to bring us back to one another. I think we needed them. What are you doing? He's going to play guitar in a second. London, do you guys want to come down here with me and sit? Yeah? Okay, great. Come on down. Come on down. I think we needed these fierce landscapes to bring us back here, to bring us back to one another. We needed to know our beloved connection to these fierce spaces to best understand and better understand our connection here to one another. Yeah. They can't sit for that long. It's too much. It's too much. And we've discounted ourselves for a really long time on this continuum. Right? We've taken on these ascetic ways of life, denying ourselves safety and comfort out in the desert because surely God was to be found elsewhere, not in my shameful, sinful body. Right? That's the record we've been playing literally since the beginning, covering up, looking elsewhere for God. And here's the trick we weren't wrong. God is elsewhere, it's just not the only place God is. Right? And that's what's made it so hard and why it's taken so long for us to get here because we weren't wrong. We just didn't have the whole thing together yet, and we still don't. Right? And these fierce landscapes brought us here. They did that because that's what extremes do, right? When you experience a death in the family, what happens? You grow closer together with your family, right? Family members who hold grudges and haven't spoken for years find themselves sitting across a dinner table with one another, laughing and crying and sharing stories of their recently departed loved one. Even if just for a moment, because extremes wake us up. These fierce landscapes shake us to our core and push us to place greater value on these spaces in between. And what we've learned from those experiences is this. We shouldn't have ever needed them to value the in-between. Shouldn't have, but did. Right? We don't hope for more tragedy so that our family can remain close, right? When you experience a death in the family, you don't hope for another death in the family so that you can come together again. No. No, what we hope to learn from those tragedies is that this space in between us is so good and so valuable. We hope to take that value, maintain those connections, and move forward. So see, we can't throw out the continuum. We can't turn our backs and say it's all completely ridiculous, veer left, start our own thing. Because we're just now coming back from the deserts and the waves and the caves and the mountaintops because we can't possibly, no matter how much we want to, break the connections with all that's come before us. We're all so intimately connected whether we like it or not, right? Because there's still great truth to be found in these stories and these journeys and because moving on is not the same thing as abandonment. Abandonment, this is what abandonment does. Abandonment strips away all the value from a particular person or experience. But a moving on and a pressing forward carries the value of those experiences on a journey towards something greater. 
It's the difference between a kid who runs away from home, super angry and disillusioned, wanting to have nothing to do with their parents ever again, and a child who just grows up and, like, goes to college out of state, right? Leaving angry and dismissing the value of everything that's come before us is what abandonment looks like. And, friends, that's not what we are doing here. We're just going to college, Right? We are packing our metaphorical bags, shopping for our metaphorical dorm room accessories, and we're moving on. We are carrying all that we've learned with us to grow into something even grander. Our book is full of stories of God coming from outside to individuals in extreme circumstances and spaces, right? Burning bushes, miraculous healings. Desert wanderings and wrestlings, empty burial caves. It's no wonder that those are the stories we kept and cataloged and bound together in a Bible, right? If the Bible's supposed to tell us about God, why wouldn't we include the stories about how to find God? It's what we knew, it's how we knew to find God, and our growth is not in abandoning the stories. Our growth instead is pressing beyond the understanding that all they have to tell us is that you must endure extreme pain, sadness, sorrow, or suffering to truly find God. Beyond an understanding that if you'll just look outside yourself and be witness to some miraculous event, then you'll see God. No, we have to press beyond. We have to go to college, right? We have to take the value and build new roads and windows of seeing God in between and among us. And those roads, friends, are ours to build. That is our responsibility. And as we build the roads between our houses to continue this timeline of searching and journeying, we find God, I believe, more and more in the in-between, right? Closer than we ever thought possible. And that, friends, is why we continue doing what we're doing. Because we're not finished yet. We are not finished yet. We remain deep in the struggle and process of seeking out God in new places, new spaces, and in fact, new faces where we never thought to look before. We have more roads to build and more windows to install and more of God to see. I, uh, I wear a, this bracelet, this tiny little bracelet here that says, remember who you are. I bought it for myself because I love it. Remember who you are. And as I was putting all this together for today, that really struck me in a very profound way. Remember who you are. You are a vital part of this interconnected, multifaceted image of God, not just here and now, but across a continuum in all times and all places. Remember who you are? Connected in a vital part of what God looks like, not just here and now, but across a continuum throughout history. Who you are determines how those in the future will see God. Do you get it? Remember who you are. So that's my challenge this week. I don't have a formal pineapple challenge for the kids since we're pretty much done. But this is my challenge to all of you adults and kids alike. This week, when you look at yourself in a mirror, I want you to say to yourself or think to yourself, depending on your level of embarrassment about it, remember who you are. And as you say that to yourself, know that the image of God that is uniquely present in you, just like these are unique representations of God in the world, 
That unique image of God present in you can be a fierce landscape for someone to discover, right? They may not need the mountains and the caves. They may just need you and the in-between. Let's pray. Oh, thank you. I want to read this uh, as a prayer for us as our choir comes back up. So if you'll pray with me. With the whole church, we affirm that we are made in God's image, befriended by Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And with people everywhere, we affirm God's goodness at the heart of humanity, planted more deeply than all that is wrong. And with all creation, we celebrate the miracle and wonder of life, the unfolding purposes of God forever at work in ourselves and the world. Amen.